0: Welcome to Trial and Medical Error, where we bridge the gap between medicine and law and unlock groundbreaking trial techniques. Join hosts Brendan Lupitan and Greg Unitan as they share novel insights and strategies to help you confidently tackle the most complicated cases. Produced and powered by LawPods. Welcome back to Trial and Medical Error. In this week's episode, I talked with all-star attorney Maggie Cooney, who co-counseled a recent slip-and-fall trial with me that led to an amazing $3.2 million jury verdict. The top offer of settlement was $150,000. The case was tried in Erie County, which happens to be Maggie's hometown. In this episode, Maggie and I discuss key battles we fought in discovery that led to critical case evidence, how focus groups helped us pick a better jury, My approach to opening statement, and how Maggie handled a potentially sympathetic defense witness on cross exam. We also discuss key factors that make or break every premises lawsuit and several closing argument concepts that anyone can apply to their next slip and fall trial to improve their chances of getting a fair verdict. If you're enjoying trial and medical error, please take a second to subscribe and leave a review on your favorite platform because it motivates us to continue to create valuable content for you and others. So, without further ado, please enjoy the show. Welcome back. I'm Brendan Lupitan with my partner, Greg. Wait a second. It is not Greg Uniton.
1: Whoa. Who do
0: we have with us today? But Maggie Cooney, our super associate. Say hello to everybody, Maggie.
1: Hi, everybody.
0: Maggie, can you tell what this sound is? <clears throat> Any idea?
1: No. Grab a buzzer.
0: No, it's just me buzzing with excitement to talk about this trial with you. I'm so pumped up. But before we do that real quick, let me give some due credit to you. So Maggie, you're our uh, super associate attorney. You've been with us two years now. And what an awesome way to ring in your two-year anniversary than with a bell-ringing verdict with me up in Erie, which is your hometown of all places. I mean, come on, it doesn't get any better than that.
1: No, it doesn't.
0: Just uh, so thankful that you threw your hat in to work with us a couple years ago, and uh, we got to the point now where we got to try a case together and kick some butt together, and we're going to talk about it today. So for anybody listening, in this particular case, we are going to talk about a trial that Maggie and I... Just got a nice verdict in it. It's a slip and fall case. And so what you're going to learn in this case is a little bit about our discovery strategy. You're going to hear some trial summary, summary of the case, strategies that I believe will help you not lose your next premises, slip and fall, trip and fall case. Tips from opening, exams, closing, voir dire, everything, and maybe even some, a couple of funny stories that happened during the course of the case. Right, Maggie? Yeah, So, Maggie, I'm going to turn it over to you. You jumped into the case at the end, which I super appreciate, and uh, you were an immense help. Why don't you give us just a kind of a nutshell summary of the case, and then we'll kind of jump into a little bit of the discovery and then get to the trial.
1: Sure. So, our client was a 65 year old man who lived in Erie with his wife and raised his children there. Uh, He was an oral surgeon. He had been an oral surgeon for, I think, almost 40 years, right? And he. Was a military veteran, was trained in oral surgery through the military. He had worked in Erie as an oral surgeon all his life. And he was contracted with a local surgical center where he would get one day per month that he would go to the surgical center and perform his operations there. So um, July 2020, he's at the surgical center for a day of procedures And he finishes the first procedure. Everything's going great. He goes out to call the patient's family and tell them how it went. And then he comes back into the OR and he's thinking about getting ready for his next procedure. And unbeknownst to him, between the procedures, the custodian had been in the OR and had wet mopped the floor. But per the policy at the surgical center, The custodian did not put a wet floor sign out during the entire time that he was mopping until he was completely finished mopping. So when the surgeon, our client enters the room, there's no wet floor sign. There's nothing warning him that the floor is wet. So of course he wipes out, reaches out to try to grab the OR table to try to catch himself. And he ends up really injuring his right shoulder and then his lower back when he falls and hits the ground. So he tries pretty valiantly to continue working for some time, and then eventually is told by his doctor, it's not safe for you to operate on patients anymore because his dominant arm is messed up. So he had a back surgery, a shoulder surgery, and then ultimately had to retire about three years earlier than he planned.
0: Perfect summary. And uh, secret tip number one to winning or not losing your next flip and fall case, Get an amazingly awesome, credible plaintiff as your client, because that's what John was. I mean, in spades, he was just a hard worker, came up from nothing, became really successful, provided a lot of wonderful medical care to people in Erie, and then volunteered time repairing kids with cleft palates, with facial defects, and teaching and giving back. So obviously, I say that sort of tongue-in-cheek, you can't control always the people that you have, but having a highly credible person with a, a meaningful story is a big help. So before we jump into the trial, and actually, here's kind of a good spot to jump in with you, Maggie. So I think a lot of us trial lawyers out there, we get a case and we work it up and it becomes our baby. I know you've had cases like that, and I certainly have, and I think sometimes that you can start to miss the forest for the trees or however that saying goes. And so here you were good enough to be willing to jump right in with me on short notice to try the case with me, which was a big help. But I think also it was terrific to have kind of a fresh set of eyes on the case. And one thing comes to mind that we'll talk about in just a second that I think in all my preparation for the case, I think this can happen to a lot of people, you start to get focused on particular area of what you're working up or your defenses and you forget sometimes some other critical piece of the case i'm going to give you some props in just a minute about something a big find that you reminded me about in the case during the course of i think actually almost in the middle of the trial but let me briefly talk about one sort of interesting discovery issue in the case and and a concept that i think everybody that's handling premises cases needs to be mindful of so you know, Maggie, you do them. I do them. Greg does focus groups all the time on our cases. And every single time, pretty much in every case for that matter, but almost every single focus group I do on premises cases, the first question that comes out of the focus group jurors is, has something like this happened before? They always want to know where their prior incidents. And so you always have to be going crazy in these cases, trying to find similar incidents had other people had problems with the defective condition or the dangerous condition did they have notice and foreseeability but that's a key piece of juror proof and so in this case i sent discovery requests were their prior incidents and as is often the case you don't get a completely accurate response in written discovery initially and they told us no there were no prior incidents before uh, dr elange's fall but we kept digging and every single Witness that I talked to from the defense, I would always make sure to ask them, are you aware of anybody else slipping and falling in the OR? Is there anybody else falling in any way at the hospital? And the first thing I found out was that the custodian in question, my guess, as we'll infamously refer to him as, he had slipped and fallen on his own wet mop floor, and he was wearing slip resistant shoes so that was sort of an interesting point that starts and kind of shows you how dangerous this condition is that even somebody that just wet mop that knows where it's wet is wearing slip resistant shoes still fell and got injured on their own wet mop floor but we keep digging and then i find out that one of the maybe witnesses but people in the vicinity actually was aware of a slip and fall and it was her of all people that had slipped and fallen two years earlier so keep digging What happened? Well, there was no wet floor sign. Well, gee whiz, that's just like what happened in our particular case. Where did it happen? In the OR. How did it happen? Well, it just been mopped by the custodian. I mean, the facts start to line up perfectly. Final question, was there an incident report? And she says, I think there was. And then you go crazy on, give me the incident report. And you actually, this is when you first started to get involved in the case. You helped me fight the redactions, right?
1: Yes. And right. So the background to that was that you found out during her deposition that there was this prior fall and that there was this incident report out there that the hospital had not produced.
0: Exactly. And and when we get it, it's all covered in black redactions. And I don't know about you, but I always want to see what's behind the door. I go crazy about it. I'm still going crazy about some of the stuff that we weren't able to get unredacted. But Briefly summarize what you had to do to convince the court to give us that part of it, at least unredact some of it and what we found.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was a motion based on different peer review principles and basically that when it's a standard incident report that is filled out same day of the incident and it's not submitted to a peer review committee, you know, an official committee for that purpose. And if it's especially if it's just describing the events that happened and the facts of what happened, it's absolutely discoverable.
0: And I thought one of the interesting things that ultimately I think the judge got spot on was that our own client's incident report had large sections of it redacted, too. And I had tried unsuccessfully to get those withdrawn so I could see what they had written in that incident report. And the judge determined that we were not entitled to see that information of what was redacted on our own client's instant report. But I think ultimately it kind of made sense and fit with the rule because the sections, and she looked at it in camera, were from essentially from kind of a risk manager type person looking at the scenario after the fact and probably making decisions that may have involved litigation strategy and so forth. And the court said, no, you guys are not entitled to that. But when you filed your motion on the earlier incident report that had developed from a two-year period earlier, she said all of that was discoverable. We should see it. And tell us what it showed. What was the big piece of information we got from uh, pulling away the redactions?
1: Well, we found out that she had said that she slipped because she didn't know that the floor had been mopped. No wet floor sign. So she falls. And then I know where you're going to now, the big reveal was that the surgical center had come up with an action plan. And it was a section of that prior incident report. And they said, here's our action plan for what we're going to do differently moving forward. And they said, moving forward, we're going to make sure that there's a wet floor sign out from the second that a custodian starts mopping. We're not going to do what we have been doing, which is wait until they're totally done. And I mean, that kind of action plan, if it had been implemented would have prevented our clients fall
0: a hundred percent and that's what you fight so hard for is to find information like that because it establishes their own standard of care and as just a general concept of other cases for people to take away a lot of times we're looking for industry standards ANSI standards and OSHA standards and so forth And, and those are all good as well if you can show they apply and they were violated But the best standard of care of all that juries care the most about is the defendant's own standard of care. And that was them writing out what they knew was a dangerous condition, that they knew it could cause problems in the future. And they came up with a solution for how to prevent it from happening again. The problem was that they didn't implement it because I think ultimately it was another hot button issue for jurors, a lack of communication. Nobody ever communicated it.
1: Yeah, I mean, even a trial, they had no real good explanation for why it wasn't implemented. And I think they tried to imply, at least, that it was an intentional decision not to implement it, but that made no sense. And it was, I think, clear that it was just a, a communication breakdown.
0: Yeah. And I think anytime, especially in organizational type defendants, corporate defendants, from a system failure perspective, Lack of communication is always something that jurors can understand leads to bad things, and it kind of drives them crazy. So I think just making that logical leap at trial, that the reason that they didn't implement their own standard was because they just didn't communicate it to people. Like the people at the top who made the decision never got it to the people, the boots on the ground, the environmental safety staff that was actually mopping the force. Like, hey, this is the way that we need to do it now. So in any case, that was... From my perspective kind of the critical discovery piece that set the case up so then for whatever reason i have the worst luck uh, getting cases settled and this was yet another example maggie so here we're hurtling towards trial you decide to jump in what struck you about going up there i mean why don't you tee off like the voir dire process up in erie for this case
1: well first of all none of us knew what to expect And so I think we found out pretty quickly that it was very different from how things are run here in Allegheny County. And it turned out to be kind of the Wild West approach.
0: Yeah. I thought it was amazing. I just (laughs) loved it. We're in a tiny courtroom with 60 people and we were just essentially told, like, have at them. And both myself and defense counsel and everybody other than the judge and the staff really didn't know what we were supposed to do. Fortunately, I've read a million books and they all start with big chapters on how to do this type of wadir. It just so happens most counties in Western PA don't have it. And it really, I thought, was a pretty lovely experience. So you get to talk to people. We were asking them questions like, who here wants to be on this jury? Who here doesn't want to be on this jury? Why not? You learn about hardships, you learn about people's feelings about your case and so forth. And I thought there were some really poignant responses that people just provided off the cuff about why they would want to serve. There's civic duty and other people nodding their heads, some people shaking their heads. But I think, not to go off on a whole tangent, but there's lots of debate locally on the type of Wadir and should this type of Wadir be implemented down here. And I found it extremely efficient. We selected that jury, I mean, very, very quickly. I think we were done basically by lunchtime, practically.
1: Yeah, it was fast.
0: For people that say it takes too long and so forth, I don't think that's the case at all. And if anything, I think you really get to identify people because it's a much more, I don't know, just less structured discussion. And so you can see other people responding what other people are saying and other people are speaking up and you can, you know, one person's responding to another person. And obviously, I think I probably did a pretty poor job because you are never going to be very good at something the first time you try it. But nevertheless, I felt that we were able to identify a lot of people who shouldn't be on the jury just for variety of cause reasons. But ultimately, I think, well, verdict proves it. We picked a good jury as a result of the whole process. Absolutely. So, opening statement. Yeah. I gave it. What did you think about it? And you don't have to just say it was good or something. You can say it sucked, but...
1: The one thing I want to ask about is that you chose this time to read your opening statement. And I've seen you in trial before, and I've seen you do it off the cuff. And so... I'm wondering why did you choose to read your opening statement this time and how did that feel for you?
0: Okay, it's such a simple question, but I have so much thought on this. So I'll give you a little backstory of something that just happened a couple of days ago. So I went to trial lawyers university seminar in Manhattan uh, last week. And you're listening to all these just top of the food chain trial lawyers and a bunch of them were just extolling the necessity of, never reading, no notes an opening statement. You must make a connection. And um, that can kind of be disheartening to some people. I've tried enough case at this point to realize that horrible saying there's more than one way to skin a cat. So fortunately, even though, you know, it's always disheartening to hear these legends of trial telling you the way that you tried to do something was the wrong way. I listened to my hero, as you always have to hear from me, Rick Friedman, talk about the way he approaches trials. And he made an offhanded comment in a podcast he did on uh, Cowan's Trial Lawyer Nation recently and said that he just has a terrible memory for facts. And so he has to refer to his notes frequently during opening statements. So, hey, my hero, my favorite trial lawyer of all time does it that way, so it's fine. And in big picture, the reason I chose to do it is I've done it both ways. I've gotten good verdicts by not using notes. I've gotten them with using notes. I've lost both ways. And for this particular case, I felt that words in particular mattered. I think reading your opening, and as an aside, I'm not sitting there like holding the paper up to my face, like reading it word for word. I have my outline on sort of a music stand or like a a very thin sort of thing in front of me, and I'm referring to it. Okay, so I'm looking down, then I'm looking up, and I'm finishing the sentences, looking at people, and I just find it's much more stress-reducing. You can be much more precise with your wording. You're not going to screw something up. It takes your tension down, your anxiety down. You can work on it ahead of time. It's easy to change wording around or language or move things around on the fly, even though that might sound counterintuitive. And I also, for me personally, and I think everybody needs to make their own decision on this, I have a tendency to get kind of worked up and over animated. And sometimes I think that in opening, that's not the best way. So if you're someone that's like me and you can get very animated and overly energetic and, you know, combine that with the adrenaline at the start of trial, by having that there and going through it very methodically and focusing more on the way that you say the words and the way that you look at people and you know precisely that everything's there, I think it comes off much more kind of cool, calm, collected, not as in your face at the beginning. You can save that for closing. I don't know how that strikes you having sat there and then listened to me do it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think what I took away from it is you wanted to portray that we're there telling the whole story, both sides of it. We're not hiding anything. These are just the facts. And I think hearing you read it, it took away some of like the pushiness of like, I'm this persuasive lawyer who's going to try to convince you or sell you on my story.
0: Yeah. And I think a lot of times, and when you give it without notes, you have to practice it over and over and over and over again, which I do a lot of times, but that in and of itself takes a lot of time and that takes time away from preparation on other fronts. So there's pros and cons to both approaches, but for anybody out there nervous about starting trial or anything like that, I mean, look, Shannon Spector read his opening statement in the Goretzka trial that wound up in a $109 million verdict. Like I said, I've gotten great verdicts from doing that approach before. So it's not like it's going to win your case or lose your case by doing that. And so you have to look at, under the circumstances of this case, which is the better approach for me. By the way, you wordsmithed it a lot. So thank you. Because that's another nice thing. You can write it. You can give it to somebody else, get their thoughts on it. They can edit it. So that was really helpful as well. So opening goes well, just from, we've talked a little bit of opening, but the basic approach is rule, story of what the defendant did, focusing on their conduct, then essentially undermining. So coming up, talking about the defenses and undermining them. Remember anybody listening that when you are addressing defenses, if you can show why the defenses are irrelevant versus just trying to distinguish them or show why they're not important, the irrelevant argument is the best of all. Uh, That's much more effective if you can show that it just doesn't matter, which is the way that we approach some of their biggest defense arguments. And then finally, you tell the story of the plaintiff, although, and this will be for another episode, I'm toying with a new way on how to approach opening. So we get into exams. Did you want to say something?
1: Yeah. Do you want to talk about our safety rule that we came up with?
0: Yeah. What did you think about it?
1: So I'm trying to think of exactly what it was, Well, we worked
0: on it. You and I worked. It was basically your rule I took.
1: I know, right. But it was when a healthcare corporation creates a hazardous condition, Yeah. they must take steps to make it safe, right? It was something like that.
0: It was, because that's exactly what happened. And then remember the key, and we talked about this in an earlier episode, but- I think with rules that you're going to frame your case around, you better tie it to the jury instructions. I just think it's always a bit of a fail if you're making your rules about things that are not ultimately the law. And i just like to be able to say in opening too, like, okay, so that's the rule. Who says it's the rule? Well, it's the rule because that's the law in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And I think that's personally much more compelling than just about anything else.
1: Right. And something that we had talked about when we were coming up with that rule was really leaning on the fact that, this wasn't just a danger that they knew about. It was a danger that they made. They created this danger.
0: Right. Those are great cases. And that happens a lot. And you and I have talked a lot about that, even in medical malpractice cases and so forth, where you can focus on those cases where it wasn't a prevention type negligence. It was they created it, they started it, and then now they even have the burden to protect. So in a med mal context, like in a surgical case, maybe it wasn't negligence to that the bowel was injured but they were the ones that caused it so you focus on they caused it so they've got almost higher responsibility to look out for it and fix it same thing here they wet mopped the floor it wasn't negligent that they wet mopped the floor but they created that dangerous condition so they've got to take steps to protect everybody from it
1: yeah absolutely
0: and i think you know it's a good opening when the defense gets up and gives their opening and they don't really have much there's nothing new that comes out there's nothing that they really get you with with the old like well what they didn't tell you you know which is always like the worst feeling if they they pull some card out on you that you left out so you got to be thorough with what defenses you're going to undermine and how you tell your story and also i think underselling what you're going to prove in the case like you better be darn sure that You can back up everything that you tell the jury because the defense is going to let you hear it throughout the case if you don't. So I want to pivot to, we can't go in absolute excruciating detail through the whole trial, but one of the aspects of the trial that I was most impressed by and I did not want to do, and so I was thankful that you were there, I'd like you to talk about how you prepared Karen, John's wife, to give such compelling testimony.
1: Yeah, Karen was reluctant to testify. The case had really kind of been spearheaded by her husband. It was his injury. But of course, she was a key part of this and has been hugely affected by it. But she was nervous about testifying, and she was very concerned about things like dates. Well, what if I get this date wrong? And I think really the key with Karen was the preparation over time, and so while I didn't want her testimony to be scripted or even too rehearsed we met several times in like the two or three weeks leading up to trial to talk about her testimony and it started with as just a conversation just between me and her and I was asking her questions about how John's injury impacted a bunch of different areas of their life. So I talked about John's physical before and after, his work, his hobbies, his personality, his relationship to himself, his relationship to others, his friends, his family, his granddaughter. What about their plans for the future? I even like to ask about, you know, when we're working with a spouse, I like to ask about the love languages, like which of the five love languages, quality time, personal touch, or physical touch, whatever all five of them are, I like to ask about how does your spouse show you that they love you? Then you can kind of talk about, has that been impacted in any way by their injury?
0: You're literally doing all direct exam preps from now on, because I don't think <laughs> I could ever get away with asking one of our clients about the, their five love language signs. Or I mean, I love it. It worked great, but I think it just goes to show that uh, different people are, are capable of doing different effective uh, means. But I didn't mean to interrupt you. It just...
1: No, yeah, and what I was looking for with her was looking for the stories that kind of had that resonance of emotional honesty behind them because that's what the jury's gonna connect with the most. The jury's gonna sniff it out if it's fluff or if it's BS. And so we talked a ton and we kind of just whittled it down over time where I was seeing the areas that her testimony was stronger, where the stories were stronger. And so we started to identify that the biggest element of the damages, I think, was the loss of John's identity as a surgeon. And figuring out that that wasn't just a loss to John, it really was a loss to their entire family because from the time that Karen and John met, they had made decisions as a couple and as a family that were really centered around John's career. And so it was really that. I mean, Karen also, another thing I addressed with her was that in our prep, she was often pretty tangential. And so really the only instruction that I gave her at all about how to testify was say less. And if I want more from you, I'm going to say to you, can you tell the jury more about that? Or can you elaborate on that? And I think that that worked because she still was absolutely the star of the show on the direct, but it allowed me to stay somewhat in control of the flow of the exam
0: and sitting back and watching that and i was aware of the different issues that always arise in different preparations with different clients and witnesses and so forth that like any prep there were struggle periods and so forth and so i really didn't know what to expect i think maybe you didn't totally know what to expect either but it really was a home run to the point that uh, matt our trial tech is saying to me after it was over, if John can do half as well as Karen, you guys are golden. So it was amazing what I think you transformed her testimony into. But let me ask you one question, and I hope this doesn't come off as sexist in any way. It's not intended to. But do you think that if you were to say, like, if I was preparing Karen, do you think that because you were a woman, she's a woman, that there was a, maybe a better connection there than I, I may have had potentially?
1: I absolutely felt that way. Yeah. Absolutely. And I've found that when working with daughters or surviving spouses, surviving wives, I do think that you can ask some of those questions that are a little more personal and, you know, maybe they just feel a little more comfortable talking to you.
0: I think that is so apparent, listening to the way that you prepared her, how she ultimately unfolded that. I do not think there's any way that by my ability whatever our dynamic would have been that i could have ever i think tapped into the connection that that you developed with her so that's really interesting to see and it was like i said very apparent during trial so while we're you know focusing on you for a second tell me about similar thing but different scenario so who was the sort of the defense star of the case it's mike s the gentleman that was mopping the environmental services custodian And we sat down and thought, and and I said, Maggie, I feel like you are the person to do this exam. And tell me about that experience and sort of how you approached it and how it went.
1: Yeah, and so the reason that we thought that, that I would be the person to cross the custodian during our case in chief is that we were very concerned about it coming off that we were like beating up on this poor guy who was just there doing his job mopping the floor and actually doing exactly what they told him to do, which was don't put the wet floor sign out yet, not until you're totally done. And so we really wanted to take a super gentle approach with him and make it really clear to everyone that we were not blaming him. I think as far as how to convey that, the first thing was just tone, that I tried to be really soft and gentle and friendly with him on the stand. And then I think maybe my second or third question with him was, Mike, do you understand that our team hasn't sued you and we aren't saying you did anything wrong? And I wanted to get that out explicitly because I wanted to try to lessen any defensiveness that he was going to come into the trial with. And I wanted it to make it explicitly clear to the jury. We are not blaming this guy.
0: And it's true. I mean, that's one of those truths of the case that sometimes you can kind of lose sight of what you're doing. I mean, you get into, well, it's cross-exam mode, and he's their guy, and sort of the default thought is like, we've got to just crush him on cross-exam. And you're thinking, no, this guy's a completely innocent, he was literally just following the policy orders that he was given. And it really said as much in his deposition. I did think it was interesting and in hindsight, you always kind of, I was like replay things. I'm like, would it have been different if I was up there? But when I took his deposition, he was so like antagonistic with me and we were sort of arguing and he had all these counterpoints on all my questions. And it was almost kind of shocking during the deposition that he was fighting. And, you know, my perspective had drank the defendant's Kool-Aid so much, but then we get the trial, you stand up there, he's on the stand he couldn't have been any meeker as far as I'm concerned.
1: Yeah, I remember thinking to myself as the exam was proceeding that I kept recalibrating, like, oh, no, pull back even more, even more, because he was just so much more meek than we ever expected him to be.
0: Yeah, but I think that our approach, our thought process of, A, you know, make him, if anything, more of like a victim of circumstance rather than having anything to really – he didn't do anything wrong – I think again because sometimes i can be more of a wrecking ball on cross exam it was better for you to do it just you know out of excess of caution that i might come off as, as too aggressive to this guy that that was the worst way that you could have played his exam and so i think your cross perfectly covered exactly and hit exactly the right tone with him that we were looking for and then he had some great stuff in his deposition that we could use with other witnesses again and without making him have to say it so I thought that worked out really well. so
1: Brendan, you got to tell us about John now. Oh. It's time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I love John. He's awesome. He's such a good dude. But as one would expect with an incredibly successful, self-admitted OCD-having oral surgeon, John was at times a handful to deal with in preparation for his testimony because highly intelligent highly detail-oriented, is going over the transcripts and is bombarding me with different theories of the case and different aspects of negligence. And it was all great stuff. And let me take a step back. I have said for years that in order to win a case, one of the pieces, really helpful piece to a winning, to getting a good verdict, among other things like getting lucky and so forth, is a plaintiff that's willing to work that's willing to to really invest in the process and give it their all and that was john in spades he read all the depositions he was on top of everything because this was really important to him however it was a bit much at times and he drove me crazy with all of his different theories and at times his difficulty in seeing the simple path to victory because that's what these cases are all about it's tell the simplest story take what you're given how can everything that they say, you know, that they're saying be right and we still win type of thinking? But that is not intuitive to most people and certainly not an oral surgeon you know, whose life was turned upside down and he's trying to find any way that he can to tell a story. I think it was also compounded by the fact that when you boil it down, basically the other side was saying he was making it up, that A, he was careless and B, his story was false. And I think that that was really upsetting to him.
1: Myopic, right? They called him myopic.
0: They said that in the opening statement that he was myopic, which is, I don't think most people even know what that word means. I barely know what that word means, but I think it's like he's just focused on his story, and so he's wrong. That was like the kind of the code word, although I think it was a code word that kind of went over a lot of people's heads, but maybe the point was made. Anyway, I'll tell you what I wasn't asking, John, was his five love signs or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) No, ours was much more... I don't want to say gruff but we would just hit different topics and actually mostly i would say with him was focusing on his cross exam because i knew he's a professional speaker this guy lectures around the country he knows how to speak to audiences so i didn't have to sit there and go through hey you know if, if you can make contact with you know eye contact with the jury and so forth if anything i'd tell him sort of like what you told karen dial it back a bit don't go off on these tangents as he was wont to do as a lot of people are at times so, he did a pretty good job of that ultimately. Really did not ever go through full blown, full testimony with him because I learned from the last trial that where I think I over prepared Marco in that case, this one I tried, I wanted to back off a little bit. It was more sort of natural feeling. And I think it came off more natural feeling, even though John had very specific things that he was dead set on saying. And I knew he was going to say them no matter what. The one funny line that you actually helped me out with your good preparation was you, I don't know if it was intentional, but Karen said on her testimony that John's a crier, okay? And again, I don't mean to be sexist, but my personal take is that juries, they don't want to see most people cry. They really don't want to see men cry. And that's probably a terrible thing, and I'm a bad person for saying that, but that's my personal take. And so I always tell my male plaintiffs, like, if you can help it, don't cry, because there's just too much of a risk that the jury's going to think that, their crocodile tears, you're turning it on to try to tap, pull on their heartstrings. And it's just so much more likely to backfire. The best I will say is almost crying, but not crying. But that's probably too much to ask of people. So anyway, Karen tells the jury, oh, watch out, because I'm not the emotional one. He is. And he cries at the drop of a hat. And lo and behold, we get into his testimony. And I don't know what it was, like the fifth question. He's started crying. And I basically yelled at him. And I said, John, let's go. We're, none let's of that. Move along. Yeah, yeah. We, we are not. I mean, Karen t- warned us about this. We're not getting into this. And I think it was kind of a good sort of way to deal with that.
1: And B, I think the reason why that didn't hurt the case and it didn't hurt the jury's view of John is that he wasn't crying about his own injuries or his own losses. He started crying when he was talking about the kids with cleft palate. I know that he operates.
0: And still, I was worried about it. But ultimately, I think he did great. And interestingly, I think he came off better in his cross than he did Mm -hmm. on his direct exam. And I think that kind of makes sense. As long as you don't fall apart on cross, you can oftentimes even look better than you did because the direct is kind of people know, like you guys probably planned a lot of this out and it's set up. Whereas cross, they know it's the other side trying to get you. They're going to be a little bit more sympathetic a lot of times unless they really don't like you. So I think that that helped. I just want to kind of put a, I don't know what, but just pause out for a second and talk about some big picture uh, strategies for premises cases that we implemented in this case, okay? And it's very, I think, relevant to how we approach John. So a couple of different things. In the way I look at premises cases, probably more than any other type of case that one could try, the impression that your client makes is critically important, okay? People make decisions, you know, nobody knows what happened. There was no video camera. So they're trying to just put together like what logically made the most sense. And a big part of that is what are the types of people and what were they likely to be doing? So if your client's like a goofball, then they're going to be thinking, well, he was probably doing a goofball thing at that time. So you want to find anything you can with somebody. In John's case, it was very easy. But whenever you're trying one of these cases, you want to find any way that you can show that your client detail-oriented pays attention, very careful. I remember one time I had a case where a woman slipped in like a drugstore and she was sweet, sweet, but she was a little kind of like, I don't know what the term is. Like she just wasn't always, she gave off the impression of kind of being a little goofy, but we start digging and I find out that in her office, she was appointed as the, like the safety warden of the office because she was always like looking out for dangerous things. I think she even had like a picture of her with the award or something. And so it was like, by digging, you could show that. But the point being that that impression that you give and what we did in this case was every single witness that wasn't John, I would ask or you would ask, is, was John a careful person? Is John detail-oriented? And most of the people like, oh my God, detail-oriented. He's the most OCD person. He pays attention to everything.
1: Even the defense witnesses.
0: Everybody. And it's such an easy, it's like two questions. It's a throwaway, but you're just, every single person, you're nailing down that impression that this is somebody that would have paid attention to a wet floor sign. Another simple question that you should always ask if it applies to your client is, because focus group jurors always ask this and people are always wondering this, it's the bias that people come in with about premises cases. And they're thinking, is this person a serial lawsuit filer? Or are they a serial slip and faller? And so with one question, you can knock all that concern out with is prior to this case in your 65 years of life, have you ever filed a personal injury lawsuit before? No. And maybe it's objectionable because it's kind of irrelevant, but you get that question out so fast it gets out and it's just that little, any concern that's out there with somebody, gone. So I think that as long as it's the case, those are easy, low-hanging fruit, but that impression that you develop is so critical in these cases because- if there's any whiff that your client has questionable motivations or is not a careful or kind of a reckless person, you're pretty much cooked in most of these premises cases.
1: Well, and Brendan, I think that question is absolutely relevant because it goes to how the jury's going to evaluate your client's credibility, his motivation to testify honestly.
0: Yep, 100%. And a couple other points I wanted to hit as far as like strategies is, again, dropping. Any claims that are not dead on point, no overreaching on the damages. And so you did a great job of looking at our economic loss claim, which was big. And it was, I think, 1.5 million. But you're digging into it and you're talking with the expert. And how do you feel about this personal maintenance component, which is basically... The value, hourly value, the person not being able to do what they could do before around the house. And in some cases, it's very on point. Like the person's paralyzed and they can't do it. That's a very legitimate. But here, we had evidence of that. And you made the recommendation that we should not go with it. And I think that was Sage.
1: Yeah, I felt that we just needed to put forth like the most credible, strong aspects of the damages. And by taking that out, it, it took away really any cross-examination that they effective cross that they could have had of our economic expert.
0: Yeah. And I think something that is maybe not apparent to some people is that the liability and the damages components of your trial, they're not like siloed. Okay. Everything is all bleeds together. And if maybe your liability case is airtight, but then the jury feels you're overreaching on your damages, And here, not only does that impact potentially the damages that they want to give your client, but it also starts to undermine your credibility, or maybe it gives more credence to the defense arguments on liability. So it's much bigger in that sense. And so you have to look around at all aspects of your case of watching out for anything that could be construed as not really upfront, not really accurate, maybe an overreach, and look to drop that.
1: Brennan, while we're talking about this concept of trimming down to really what is the strongest, I saw you do that with our medical experts, because I think at one point pre-trial, we had like five potential medical experts and we ended up presenting only two. And so I wonder if you can talk about that.
0: Yeah. And this was one of those cases where John at 65 had a Myriad of prior surgeries and medical conditions. He had back surgery, neck surgery, knee surgery, hip resurfacing surgeries, and then had multiple surgeries after this, some of which were related, some of which were not. Very, very messy medical picture. And so the way that I look at it is like you've got to break it down into two parts. One is have your arguments, which we're going on a bit here, so I'm not going to go into all of them here. We can talk about it in a future episode, but you had to have all your arguments to explain how aggravation pre-existing injuries work, the aging process, that people with pre-existing conditions are just as entitled under the law to make a recovery for injuries caused by negligence than everybody else is, all that stuff. And what we did in opening real quick and throughout the case was we framed all of his prior unrelated medical conditions as things that he had overcome. To make it that it was impressive that at 65, this guy had gone through all these different surgeries, followed doctor's orders, done all the medical care that he needed, and got back to being able to practice again and make it a noble thing, rather than like this decrepit person and this was all going to happen anyway. But on the flip side, on the afterward, like what you're referencing, I mean, he saw everybody under the sun, neurosurgeons, different neurosurgeons, orthopedic surgeons for the back, for the shoulder, physical therapists of different physiatrists for I mean it was unbelievable amount of medical care. I mean and to his credit, it was because he was trying to get better. He was hell bent on continuing to practice for as long as he could because of how much he loved it. And again, you got to find what is the truth, what is the real story behind all of it? Because at first it's very daunting. You're like, oh my God, like how are we going to prove this? And I had actually taken the spine surgeon's deposition long ago. He was a little wishy-washy on causation. And then the defendants decided not to call their own medical experts because the medical exams that John had been sent for, they said, no, he did suffer an injury in this. And they just had sort of varying degrees to which he had recovered. So you have to take your case for what are you being given? And when we see that they're not going to have anybody that can contest our doctors, what's the cleanest path to victory? And so we decided not to play the spine surgeon who was kind of iffy. And instead, we played only primary care doctor who happened to be an internal medicine doctor, which I thought was important because it kind of gave him like an extra level of ability to make these decisions. And then we did a very short video of the shoulder surgeon who said that this was absolutely cause. He was very definitive on the cause of injury. And so those two things combined made for a short and sweet medical proof in our case in chief. And I would also say on that point, it would be the last point of just from the strategy perspective, and I probably say this too many times, but when you do a focus group, focus groupers get your case in an hour, okay? You can tell the whole case, they get it. So why do we need to take like two weeks to tell our story at trial? And the longer your case goes on, the more opportunity there are for mistakes and so forth. So you got to keep it short and sweet. And plus, when you get into that trial, Maggie, you sat there, you can just tell when the jury Come on, you get it, hurry up. And they even said they appreciated like witness, bang, 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 bang. Okay. And again, I, I like to video some of my witnesses It may be more boring than having them in person, but that way we can guarantee that our case in chief, that the way we put our evidence in is seamless. It just goes nonstop until we're done. And sometimes it catches the defense off guard. They're not even ready in time because of how fast we go. But that's multifaceted, and I think there's only upsides with putting on the shortest and sweetest case that you can. So we're wrapping up here. Closing argument. What were some of the key things that we chose or we felt we needed to focus on at that point?
1: Well, So I'll start with some of the best feedback that I thought we got from the jurors after the trial, which was that someone, one of the jurors came up to you and said that they thought you did such a great job of cutting through all the BS. And I want to hear what you think about that and how you did that in your closing.
0: Yeah, I think, again, I'm sort of a simple mind, so I need simple stories. And again, my hero, bring it full circle to Rick Friedman. He said, "If there is no such thing as a formula or a recipe for winning trial, but the closest thing there is to a recipe is a simple, compelling story. And so we just hammered on, look, you knew this was dangerous. You came up with a plan to fix the danger you didn't do it, and a guy got hurt. And instead of saying, hey, we're sorry about that, or in any way accepting responsibility, you're coming up with all these cockamamie defenses about why he's at fault. And I think that that was basically what it boiled down to, is that they violated their own standard of care. And instead of accepting responsibility, they're blaming him. And then you get multiple benefit from that. You get The piss off factor that they're not accepting responsibility instead they're probably making stories up to try to escape accountability and you get a simple story i mean i think we even said that that literally when you talk about like frivolous cases and so forth like people were like oh slip and fall case you know it's probably frivolous i mean unless they didn't have like a wet floor sign out or something that's like literally what people talking about like well yeah hey that's what actually would happen in this case there was no wet floor sign out duh and so I think just never letting off of your key point, not getting into their stuff. You know, they really wanted to make the case all about whether this custodian was there or he wasn't. And we said from the beginning, it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant whether he was there or not because he was dressed like everybody else. And it didn't matter because that wasn't what their policy was. That wasn't what they said they were supposed to be doing. And then, you know, we added some humor and you and I were laughing about the idea of like, a surgeon having to walk under the way they wanted practice medicine, having the surgeon walk in, he's got to like rub his toe on the floor to see if it's slippery or not before he goes into performance procedures. Like, is that what you want your surgeon (laughs) doing before he operates on you? He's like checking to make sure like it's safe. Can I go in here? It's like, I mean, just some of the absurdity of it.
1: That was the moment of your closing that I think was like the, let's get real here. Right moment. And I just loved that. Yeah. And,
0: and I think just calling some things out, you don't get the chance to talk to the jury, but you kind of feel like, you know, what is like they're joking about. And one of them was this ridiculous argument that surgical booties, the surgery center provided for our client to wear, made him somehow at fault for wearing them because they were extra slippery. And then I remember saying in closing, and let's not forget the term that will live in infamy, surgical booties, and the whole jury starts laughing.
1: Laughed, yeah.
0: You hit those points. And in this case, one thing I was sort of thinking back on, kind of a peculiar case in the sense you've got this big economic loss, and I know that it impacted his life, but we had to find out. I mean, on the non-economic component, all the pain and suffering, it's like, I don't personally feel it was super compelling to make the case all about his pain and suffering from a damages model perspective. So you focus on the economics and you say, that's the easy stuff. And the hard stuff is that you guys have to assess is what's the value of what he lost. And so you and I did a lot of brainstorming. We're like, what is the biggest non-economic thing? And this was the same concept that, that was in the Corsetti, the TBI case from December, loss of work identity here were two different plaintiffs that all they wanted to do was work. That was like their whole thing. That's what got them up in the morning. And no, they're not like paralyzed. They're not in this horrible medical condition, but they can't do that thing that they truly loved. And we showed you how important that was to them. And so you work that into the loss of the pleasures of life. And I think personally, that's all you need. Now, in hindsight, do you think there were any areas from a damages perspective that we I don't know, didn't argue enough or could have argued more?
1: I mean, no, because I think what we did was we focused on the strongest points. We could have chosen to talk about the fact that he couldn't golf as much anymore.
0: Terrible argument.
1: Yeah, and we made that decision to not go there because it's not really what's important at the end of the day.
0: I totally agree. I mean, it would be unless the person was a professional golfer and they couldn't (laughs) golf anymore, that would be maybe the only circumstance that I would get into somebody's inability to golf as being a compelling form of damages, but when you got someone that they lived to operate, they lived to volunteer time and helping kids and teaching people and they can't do that anymore. That's huge. And everybody can identify something in their life that if they lost that, that would make a big difference to them.
1: Brendan, if we have time, I want to ask you one more thing about your closing, which was how you address the fact that our clients were well off.
0: Yeah. And you and I, I think the trial went in so well and I felt really good. That we were winning but couldn't i mean i remember you and i were walking around waiting for that verdict and i i was saying my biggest concern is that they're and the defense was clearly banking on the same thing that look this guy's rich so he's not deserving of money is really what it boiled down to but again i think in situations like that you've got to put it on the table you can't let it be this kind of like insinuated concept out there and so i was just very blunt with it i said you know actually. Because I think this is important. This was going to be my sort of trial tip for the day. So, what I did, explain this more in just a second, but I talked about there can be frivolous defenses. Okay. And then I you know, talked about a couple of them. And then I said, but one of the biggest ones and, and one of the nastiest ones is that they are basically saying to you that because this guy, and you made a great point, and this wasn't some rich guy before, but he didn't come from some rich family. He came from nothing. He put himself through school. So they want you to punish him for pulling himself by the bootstraps and becoming a successful oral surgeon and saying that money that he's entirely entitled to, that there was nobody that opposed it whatsoever. He shouldn't get that because he's rich. That's what they're telling you. And I literally said to them, and they're banking on you. They're banking on a jury, people from the community area being cheap with this guy. And you get to decide, are you going to be cheap with them or not? Because that's what they're banking on. That's why we're here. And again, you tap into those double like, A, you're confronting it. You're putting the BS on the table for everybody to look at rather than it kind of just being this like ephemeral thing floating around. And then, yeah, I think there can be a tick off factor in the right kind of case. And I I think there was here. But that gets to something big picture thing that I am really big on right now. And I think we can kind of like close with a sort of like a trial tip. Whether it's MedMal, but premises cases in particular, I think there's an incredibly important concept that you want to keep in mind called confirm then distinguish because I knew I would forget it. So people come in, you got to meet them where they are. So most juries coming in are going to, whether they say they don't or they do or whatever, most everybody is going to have some preconceived negative notion about slip and fall cases. And you got to put it on the table. Okay. And so I think in opening, in voir dire too, with your questions, but in opening, certainly you have to say, and what I said, and then I did, I went further in, in closing is something to the effect of, Hey, when you came in here, you're already ticked off that you got selected for jury selection. And I'm going to bet kind of imagining what's going through their minds. Cause it probably is that when you started reading questions, and this was slip and fall. You probably thought to yourself, Oh great, here we go. It's probably one of these frivolous slip and fall, serial fall person cases, and here I am stuck wasting my time with that. And you confirm that they're right. And you say, unfortunately, it's justifiable to feel that way because sadly there are frivolous cases that get filed. And the sad thing is, is that a few bad apples can ruin the bunch. But we also know, and this is where you distinguish, that while there are frivolous cases, there are absolutely frivolous slip and fall cases that get filed, We also know that there are some righteous cases, that there are some legitimate cases that also get filed. And we believe that in this particular case that the evidence is going to show that this is one of those righteous cases and that ultimately it's going to be worth your time being in here and it's going to be worth a very substantial verdict in the plaintiff's favor. Assuming the case goes well and you live up to your prediction in closing... Remind them of that again. You know, remember, you had that feeling. You're just like, why am I stuck here dealing with some stupid, probably frivolous, slip and fall case? I said, now you saw what I meant. Like, this is one of those righteous ones. This was worth your time. And then in closing, you can point out that, and while everybody talks about frivolous cases, hot coffee and all this jazz, what people don't talk about a lot, but it's very real, and maybe you saw it in this case, are frivolous defenses. And isn't that exactly what happened in this particular case? And then you can kind of pivot into that. And now you're really tapping into people's core beliefs. You're showing that this case was different, which again is confirming how they feel about it. And then you're pointing out something new that they're going to say, oh, yeah, you know, what? you're right. This is BS, what happened in this particular case. And I just think that that's, it's a very important, um, I mean, you know, I'm all hot on that in, in med cases as well, but I think it's an important point to work into these cases, how this one's different. This is not like those other ones that you've heard about. So that's my trial tip for the day. Anyway, it was awesome. Oh, one last thing, because we're doing the podcast. I have my funny moment of the case. Are there any moments that you look back on, you're just like, golly, well, I'll share my...
1: Yeah, mine might be the same as yours, though. <laughs> let's let's hear yours.
0: My favorite, because uh, it's so relevant to what we're doing right now, is that right before opening statement, there was a motion made by defense counsel to preclude <sighs> me from using my, I don't even know what they were, like illegal trial strategies and reptile and, you know, some other, you know, legal word salad stuff and and it came out that defense counsel had been, I guess, reading things I've written and, and certainly listening to the podcast and made reference to this very podcast to the judge and said that Greg had said that uh, we're priming juries or something crazy like that. And that what I'm really doing is telling the jury to violate the golden rule that they can't think of this as, an, as if this happened to themselves. And I mean, it was surprising and funny. And personally, I was sort of tickled pink that. Defense counsel was listening to our podcast, so.
1: Yeah, I think you thanked him.
0: (laughs) I did, and I asked him if he subscribed, which uh, I don't think went over too well, but they were good sports (laughs) about it. But that was always enjoyable. Trial's always good for some good stories. Anything else that you'd like to close out with?
1: Uh, Just to say that I think we also got lucky in the sense that we had a really excellent trial judge and defense counsel that we worked really well with and were able to sort out a lot of the You know, motions and lemonade and things like that. And it was fun and amicable between us throughout the trial.
0: I think that's a great point because some of these things can be such slugfests. And at the end of the day, the attorneys are supposed to be professional and civil, civil law that we're practicing. And, And a lot of times it's not very civil, but our two opponent defense counsel were absolutely civil. We were able to work so much out together, which makes it so much less stressful, I think, for both sides. And you're right. The judge just, I mean, perfect case tried, wonderful court to try in front of. She was on top of the law. She was on top of everything. I mean, all the decisions as I look back on them, you're always sour when the decision doesn't go your way on emotion or so forth. But as I look back, every decision that she had was spot on. So it was a great quick trial to try.
1: Yeah. And I mean, even the rulings that went against us now, I'm like, well, geez, thank God, because now they have no grounds for an appeal.
0: A hundred percent. There's always silver linings that are not always immediately apparent with things that happen at trial. And that's just big picture, you know, same with arguments, same with problems that you encounter. There's always another side to it. And I think good trial lawyers always work hard to try to find those. We don't always, but, you know, they're always there. So it was awesome trying the case with you. Look, I'm very excited to try more case with you in the future. It was funny. I was listening to that last podcast and Greg was saying that he specifically didn't, he was like, I don't want to go up to try, Erie for a week. And I was just laughing because he missed out on a lot of fun. But I'm really happy that I got to try it with you. You did an awesome job. And um, yeah, there will be more in the future. So for everybody listening, thanks for listening to the uh, Trial and Medical Error podcast, episode nine. I mean, we're cruising, we're flying along. I think it's nine, maybe it's more than that. And uh, I just want to say that anybody out there listening, if you're interested in us co-counseling a case or coming in and trying your case for you. That's what we freaking love to do. We're trial lawyers over here, uh, nerd out over this stuff. Love to help. If you just want to talk, you want to talk focus groups, you want to talk trial strategy, call us anytime. Maggie's a wealth of information. Greg is, and I'll certainly chew your ear off as well. So thanks for listening until next time. Maggie, signing off. It was fun to do a podcast with you as well.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: All right. Thanks for tuning in to Trial and Medical Error. We hope our discussions have equipped you with actionable insights to lift your clients above the hurdles of medical malpractice litigation. Ready to refer or collaborate on MedMal and catastrophic injury cases? Visit our attorney referral page at pamedmal.com forward slash refer. See you in the next episode.